You're listening to the Ace Records podcast with myself, Pete Perfides. It's a pleasure to welcome today's guest for all sorts of reasons. In the 18, I think, years since he became The Guardian's head rock and pop critic, he's maintained a dizzyingly high standard of writing, and indeed he writes about music of all genres with a lightness and conversational vernacular that artfully belies the depth of his knowledge. That is harder to do than it looks. He's won the Record Reviews Writer of the Year category, the Record of the Day Awards, eight times, and would probably still be winning it if the awards still existed. Maybe it was him that broke them. He's had his testicles flicked by Marilyn Manson and sat at Prince's feet while his hero tried to get him to sing Sign of the Times to him. (laughs) I'm enjoying imagining that. Uh, His writing attracts attention from the most unlikely quarters, some of it not always welcome. A few days ago, Taylor Swift fans went to the trouble of setting up a fake Twitter account in his name so that they could then abuse it. Elton John is another fan, so much so, in fact, that he persuaded him to ghostwrite his official autobiography, simply entitled Me, which is out in October 2019. Latterly, our guest has also been running a successful club night, late night minicab FM, an infrequent celebration of all the AOR music one tends to hear in a minicab when feeling somewhat emotionally vulnerable at the messy end of a legendary evening. It's also a delight to meet today's guest because I've long been a beneficiary of the similarity in our surnames, receiving many compliments over the years by people seemingly unable to handle the idea that two music journalists with similar surnames can exist at the same time. I'm not Alexis Petridis, but the guy sitting opposite me is. Hello, Alexis. Hello, Pete. That was a very lovely uh, lovely introduction. A very long intro, wasn't it? It's nice. No, no, you were bigging up things that I wasn't expecting to big up. So, uh, such as? Such as Late Night Mini Cab FM, um, which is, um, yeah, it, 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 it was just, it wasn't a joke, but um, it has developed a life that I didn't intend. I didn't, me and the other person I started with, a guy called John Burgess, didn't really intend it to uh, to have. It's a runaway success. I wouldn't go so far as to say that. I'm not buying a yacht for the proceeds or anything. But but yes, it is it is popular, and we're doing it up in London in uh, November. At the who's, who's actually who sort of had the idea of actually devoting a club night to it? It was uh, in the ether. I wrote a thing um, for I think GQ magazine um, about ten years ago yeah. uh, after I'd had an experience where um, I was on holiday with my uh, then pregnant wife. Um, and we got out to dinner, and uh, I had uh, sort of she was pregnant, and I'd sort of helped out by drinking her half of a bottle of wine as well as my own. And in the cab on the way home, they were playing uh, Mellow Magic FM, and I'd said on 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 social media on Twitter, oh, you know, I've reached this sort of uh, this 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 kind of nirvana of drunkenness where every record they play on on Mellow Magic sounds unbelievable sounds amazing and all these people suddenly piled in going oh god yeah no that's happened to me that's happened to me and so I wrote a piece about it and then Jono uh, was doing a sort of had an idea for a club along similar lines that you think he'd done a couple of times up in London and sort of came to me and went why don't we try and do one in Brighton yeah. and the first one that we did um I was very kind of like, this isn't going to work. No one's going to get this concept. Mm. And I got this 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 text from from Jono about eight in the evening, going, "Where, where are you?" I was like, I'm putting the kids to bed. I'll be down in a bit. He goes, "You've got to come down because there's literally no one else here other than me." <laughs> and uh, I thought, oh well, you know, I'd said to my wife, "Oh, well, I'm just going to go and I'm going to play for an hour, um, and I'm going to come home. This is it's a disaster. It was a bad idea." 
um, and then uh, got there. And for one reason or another, the pub was it was heaving by about ten thirty. People wow. were going absolutely mental. People so, were, and what were the lodestone tracks? The lodestone track was uh, well, there were two. It was, I guess that's why I call, they call it the blues by Elton John, which okay. just unexpectedly turned into this kind of mass yeah. sing along. And yeah. then You're So Vain by Carly Simon, which people were sort of standing on tables yeah. and yeah. da 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 da. Anyway, having said I would go out for an hour, I, I got back home at like two in the morning really drunk having had a wonderful evening decided to play a bit of music when i got in woke my wife up terrible argument i was consigned to the 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 spare room for the rest of the night um but yeah that was it anyway sorry it's like boring anecdote but um, but when you got home were you playing the same kind of yes yeah i was playing your so i was was reliving the moment of glory that was somebody else playing your so vain in a pub Um, and of course you know that so, so I guess what they I love I've always loved that song I thought sort of, you know it is one of sort of Bernie Taupin's very very best lyrics it mm. completely kind of it's a total bullseye lyrical moment um, of course you're now friends with Alton so I guess you could have told him that anecdote had you wanted yeah I don't know how he would take it the concept of it is of the club we're not we're not taking the, the the mickey out of this music I genuinely really love yeah. records like um Things that I wasn't allowed to like. So would I, it be something like like Keep on Loving You by Arias? Yeah, would huge, that, would that be a huge, big one? huge okay. tune. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know uh, the, the sort of the classics. Our three before eight, if you will, yeah. are um, Coming Around Again by Carly Simon. Yeah. Uh, Zoom by Fat Larry's mm. band, and possibly Stay with Me Till Dawn by yeah. Judy Zook. Uh, it's just records that uh, like you probably weren't allowed to like at yeah. the time for whatever reason. It's quite close it? to before before Guilty Pleasures turned into something else. Mm. There was just a moment at the very beginning of Guilty Pleasures where it was in some ways quite close to what you did which is which is just that it's actually the opposite of irony. Yeah, and it's, totally, um, yeah. And it, it's just it's almost you love these records with the sincerity that could break you. Yes, absolutely. I think that's, I think that's absolutely. I think the thing about Guilty Pleasure that's sort of fascinating is when it started in the sort of first compilation that they put out, it was amazing because it was this sort of little buried piece of, of, of pop history. You know, you, I, Lion and I always sort of go on about nostalgia being a form of curation. And, you know, if you talk about 1976, 1977, 1978 in pop music, people, you know, automatically start talking about the first Clash album and mm. never mind the bollocks and things like that. And of course that music made, you know, zero impact on Radio 1. They weren't playing sort of safe European home and things like that. They were playing How's That by Sherbert. Yeah, yeah. Um, and similar kind of records that were on, on that first Guilty Pleasures compilation. And that was the music that I heard, you know, mm. as a sort of seven, eight-year-old at that time. Mm. And it had this unbelievable emotional pull mm. hearing it again. It was just like I'd completely forgotten about this stuff, you well, know. Yeah, I mean, something like Storming a Teacup by yeah. the Foundations is, um, is just... Um not only does it, I mean, it just sounds like an incredibly wise song as well to me. It's, uh, you know, it's just, it, you can hold that up as, you can, it's a song that you can live your life by in a way. And I sort of think, going back to your point about the sort of early incarnations of, of Guilty Pleasures, it, what, it, what, it, what it makes me realise is that there, there are some, some ideas that when enough, when a certain amount of people start to love them, when yeah. they become so popular, it's a, it's a bit like... It's a bit like the luggage on Aaliyah's plane. <laughs> it just. <laughs> 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 
Sorry, I didn't know I was going to say that. <laughs> That's amazing. But do you know what I mean? What a he metaphor. Can't, he, can't, he can't stay up. <laughs> he can't. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, it's exactly that, and maybe that's what's happened with the the, the late night minicab thing. Maybe that's no, no. You're good. For, for, I think for the time being, you're good. But um, it also, it's, it's more specific. Oh, I see what you mean about about it becoming so popular that yeah, yeah, it, yeah, it, yeah, it, yeah. It, it sort of it can't it can't survive when that it becomes something different when that many yeah. people like it. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you know, you never to get to a point where you know it's just like a hen party thing. And also, I think the audience for guilty pleasures, from what I can gather, because Jono has played there quite a lot. Yeah, who I do. Um, uh, do late night minicab with and he said the audience has got a lot younger you know it's it's kind of it's the sort of amazing yeah. thing where the club the sort of brand has essentially you know survived mm. while drawing in a younger and younger audience so their notion of a guilty pleasure um you know is now sort of a katie perry record or something like that it's it, it's you know what i mean it's stuff I've, that i've noticed actually there's an adjective uh, there's an adjective my kids have started using and maybe yours do too it's become a bit of a thing um uh, wholesome they so oh right no no yeah, that's new one of me I really like that that's really wholesome mm-hmm. and apparently a lot of their friends use it and it's a sort of uh, it's that it's become repurposed to sort to, to describe in its way quite no because obviously maybe to them the world is so scary and if mm-hmm. all your mates are doing nos or whatever you know mm-hmm. then then wholesome has become a kind of quite a cool thing in itself I had a very odd experience uh, earlier this summer I went to see uh, Bob Dylan and Neil Young in Hyde Park and with my friend Tom and we were on the train back to Brighton and we bumped into these kids that were you know sat on the table opposite us and they were on their way to Brighton from I don't know Haywards Heath or Crawley or somewhere going out as we were coming home they were going out for the night their night was just beginning at midnight and we got talking to them and they're all sort of like 17 or whatever and they're obviously pretty drunk and um they were sort of saying oh what we've been doing we're talking about music so what sort of music do you like and they went oh you know one of them went i love john denver and i was like that's just a bizarre thing mm. to you know what i mean yeah, yeah and they were like and then they all started singing uh take me home country road <laughs> and they knew all the words take me home country road so maybe that is a kind of wholesome yeah. thing yeah. to like as opposed yeah. to opposed to listening to xxx tentacion or whatever yeah and they listen to the other stuff they'll listen to sort of you know sort of grime and whatever whatever mm. you know whatever the, the other edgy sort of subgenres there are it's just that that's in the mix as well that's really and similar uh, you know, Africa by Toto again is yeah. like huge amongst the like our, our kids' generation. Yeah, and I don't really understand what why that would be that specific record. I don't understand if it's been used on a. But the way kids access music now mm. is just, you know, I, I can't get any handle on it whatsoever. No. Um, God, you know the things that my daughters and uh, you know suddenly, you know, my, my eldest daughter had was playing a sort of Spotify playlist in the car. And it was all this sort of, uh, you know, kind of YouTube bedroom poppy kind of yeah. stuff like Claro and Girl in Red. In the middle of which, uh, She's So Lovely by uh, Scouting for Girls oh, came wow. on. right. Um, or, God, what was the thing? What was the thing that came on Pick of the Pops and she started singing along to it and she got it right? Oh, bollocks, can't remember. That's Sorry. right. The, so, and also, so again, so on, on the subject seemingly random things uh, the kooks uh, suddenly have major yeah. currency yeah. in the world of our well, there's no i think if you but my theory about that because all those bands do all these kind of absolutely third division uh you know early noughties indie strivers mm. uh, are playing like wembley and the o2 and stuff like that so yeah. it's not just the kooks it's uh the wombat 
Yeah. People like that. And I think because no sort of big guitar act has come through, you know, this is not the time for guitar music, mm. really. Um, if you like that kind of thing, and not everybody does like grime, you know, yeah. some people are stirred at the age of 17 by the sound of uh, peeling guitars or whatever yeah. rather than, you know, someone rapping or whatever. You've got to dig back into the past to find... You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. stuff. And I think, yeah. you know, I assume that's what's happening because the people going to see the Wombats are not... I couldn't. I can't imagine the Wombats were ever that successful. They could have played the O2 when they were, you know, at the peak of their... Uh, well, they are at the zenith of the fame now, apparently. <laughs> they but, seemingly are, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a very, very odd thing how they act. So, you know, it's, it's, I suppose it's that notion of there's no... There's no gatekeepers anymore. There are no access points are, are not uh, rationed, maybe in the way that they were when. No, when time has been flattened out because you can access everything. And of At course, once, presumably, yeah. you know, um, you're two years younger than me, I think. So that uh, you know, when you were first buying records, if there was something from the past that you liked, mm. then you would have had to have ordered it in a specialist. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Do you remember doing that? Yes, I do. I remember having to go to. I grew up in Yorkshire initially, and then my family moved to Buckinghamshire. And I remember having to go to London, to the HMV shop in London, to get a copy of the third Velvet Underground album. That was not available in High Wycombe hmm. or Ailes. And you can either. order it either. Well, I could have probably ordered it in the local store in Hamisham Record House, but the guy who worked there was uh, a bit of a twat uh, who had mocked me uh, when I ordered a 12-inch by Felt. Um, and uh, I made what these, he said. Yeah, it was a lot of jokes about, oh, do you want to be felt up and all this kind of thing? And da 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 da. I thought, well, you're a monstrous prick, and I'm not going <laughs> to, you know, I'm not going to patronise your establishment any longer. Um, but yeah, the, the song I remember that my daughter um, knew apparently out of the blue that was on Pick of the Pops the other day was "Wherever I Lay My Hat" by Paul Young. Wow. Which she, she she launched into knowing the words. But then it got to the chorus, and she kind of spoiled it by thinking the chorus went, wherever I lay my hat, that's where I live. <laughs> so, so I wasn't... In, I know it's like jarred slightly, but um, up to that point, she was properly... By the look in your eyes... I don't know where... where. Well, she, she loves it, and she... Loves she she knew it. I wouldn't yeah. say... I don't know if she loved it or not. I was like, well, how do you know that? And she went, everyone knows this. Because oh. yeah. I do find... That production, I do find very hard to love. You know? Do you? Still. Sound, yeah. Even the sound of Pino Palladino. But P- Pino is, you know... Pino moved on, didn't he? So, yes. as he, if he were here now, he would be very, uh, he would strenuously remind us that he went on to play with D'Angelo and some other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool who? Didn't he play with Did he? <laughs> yeah. oh. uh, I'm sure I, he'd be very gracious. I think he's got a bit of a bee in his bonnet about being associated with that fretless. Really? Bass. It's an unrevived sound, isn't it, the fretless bass? It's one of those weird things. You think. I mean, it could be revived. I just felt, I just felt like, you know, that Paul Young album. You know, I'm not. I'm as you know, I'm not especially puritan in my kind of. You know, I don't. You know, there is. You know, for instance, I I probably like Kim Wilde's version of "You Keep Me Hanging On" more than the original. Wow. So you know, we're all different in that way. But <laughs> but um, but with that that the, that Paul Young album, it just seems what he did to those songs mm. is it's almost like an outsider art project that. <laughs> It's like he kind of, he took songs that you couldn't really, that when, when he'd finished with them, you could never have imagined them being any good to start with. No, no, Love of the Common People's like that, isn't it? Yeah. His version of Love of the Common People is extraordinary. Yeah, and of course, wherever I lay my hat, I just mm. thought, this is just so, uh, there is nothing here that could ever have been good in the first place. And then when I heard it, I just thought, this there must be somebody else going on. He's. I, I think that song, in particular, Wherever I Lay My Hat, is so... Evocative of the summer of 1983, mm. uh, 11 or 12, and uh, it's a very hot summer, summer of 1983, and everything in the charts that summer sounded 
like hot weather Double Dutch by yeah. Malcolm McLaren, yeah. uh, All Night Long by the Mary Jane Girls, uh, and wherever I'm, I, but I can't work out whether in my head I've just got hot weather mixed up with the things that happen to be on the radio and oh, now I associate them as, you know what I mean? Oh yeah, I mean, but that, then I think just afterwards, I my memory could be failing me here, but I think uh, Give It Up by Casey and the Sunshine that was number one for all that summer. Yeah. Sort of like uh, uh, came out of nowhere. It was like the cavalry had arrived. Yeah, you know? yeah, it was, yeah, it yeah, yeah. Just felt like after Paul Young, it felt like. The greatest record ever made. You know. <laughs> uh, he looked quite grumpy when he was performing that on top of the pot. Oh, what, KC? KC, He'd yeah. been in a terrible accident, though, hadn't he? Had he? Yes. Okay, and he had had a terrible drug problem as well, didn't had he? Had he? I think so, yes. Anyway, um, we are here, obviously, we're in the HQ of Ace Records, and there's so much here, there's so much that has come out on the label. Yes. That, um, that I, perhaps more than anyone we've had on this podcast, which I, I can imagine sort of floating your boat. I'm even looking at a... Uh, the, uh, 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 a CD called The Pop Genius of Mickey Most. Yeah. And I can just see loads of catnip here for you al- already. Yes. I'm going to hand it over. And, you know, there's the Daisy Age compilation, yep. which uh, Bob Stanley compiled, the three-day week thing. I mean, there are lo- you know, this is a, a label that at times, with so, certainly with its recent output, I can imagine almost sort of exists purely to... Just to please me, yeah. ...say your whims. Yeah, it's true. I think that the, 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 there's a perception of Ace as a label as being... Uh, slightly earnest and uh, worthy, and and quite you know, purveyor of kind of uh, old R and B and soul and uh, early rock and roll and things like that. Which is it certainly has done a, a fantastic job over the years of, of promoting that kind of music and ensuring it's still available. You know, um, but recently it's put out all this stuff that that kind of uh, I'm always fascinated by music you know, that sort of falls through the cracks a bit. You know, it's what I was saying to you before about stuff that falls through the cracks of history Mm. a little bit. It's always endless fascination. Um, And something like this, Mickey Mouse CD, which contains the original version of Living Next Door to Alice, which I didn't even know was a cover when Smokey did it, but New World did it originally. I didn't know, completely unaware of that until this Yeah, they were like an early rack kind of failed experiment. Yeah, it's a slightly confused uh, label initially, rack, before it finds its sense. It's got all these weird... I bought in a charity shop just because it was on rack uh i can't remember who it's by uh it's called lord of the dance and i thought well it's definitely not the hymn right it's the hymn <laughs> it's 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 a sort of acoustic sort of oh, folky who did that that was uh what is it who's it credited to i can't remember the name of the band yeah, go on. um but you know it's one of those things where you know you think of rack as this label has this incredibly strong identity mm. that's linked uh, largely to the glam era and the era just after that when they had sort of smoky and yeah. things like that. Um, if any people are listening to this podcast because they do appreciate, you know, Ace's excavation of the uh, obscure sort of Detroit soul, I'm <laughs> clearly mortified by this this conversation. But <laughs> it's fine. Um, they, I'm sure they can roll roll with it for a while. <laughs> um, but no, I, 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 this sort of stuff is just. Um, Things like Motorbiking by Chris Spedding and Dance with the Devil by Cozy Powell and, uh, you know, 48 Crash by Susie Quattro. This is sort of the first music I can remember. And Mickey... Um, Go on. No, that's it. And I think it just, you know, it went in at some sort of uh, primeval level and it's never really left me. No, I I couldn't agree more. Um, I quite like Mickey Most's almost kind of callously utilitarian approach yeah. to making music, especially when it's kind of, he kind of, when it collides with artists who maybe slightly have more high-minded yeah. ideas. So slightly, moving slightly before Rack, you know, people like 
Terry Reid. Yes. And Donovan. Donovan, yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. Who, you know, it, it, it's a sort of test of how, how badly do you want to be a pop star? <laughs> you know. <laughs> and, of, and of course, you go... It, go on, sorry. No, but in fairness, he gives Donovan space. You know, the Mickey Most sort of produced Donovan albums are not, uh, you know, uh, uh, chock full of pop. I mean, they're, they're kind of, you know... He, no, he, true. In absolute fairness, Sunshine Superman is probably the first psychedelic record ever made, yes. certainly recorded, for psychedelic rock record anyway. Um, you know, and that's that's come out yeah. under his ages, so he's not no. just going... You know. No, absolutely, but he kind of like... But he don't... There's that sense that it has to work as a hit. So, oh, yeah. you know, looking at the, the, the zeitgeist. Yes. What, and, you know, he'll. there's an attempt to give those artists some of what they kind of feel is recognisably theirs. Mm-hmm. But I do I do like that sort of tension between, you know, seeing what's, out, seeing what's commercially viable mm. and then that so much great music happens in the space between what the artist wants and what yes. the producer can confidently absolutely. sell. Absolutely. Absolutely. I also like that sort of slight all hands on deck thing about rack again i didn't know this until recently that the guy on brother louis on hot chocolate which is on this mickey most album uh the voice that goes listen up i don't want no spook in this house it's alexis corner oh yes I it's alexis corner it sounds, been, yeah this has been he's been drafted in from presumably some session with ccs or something like <laughs> yeah. that and it's such an extraordinary place for alexis corner to kind of end know, up yeah, yeah. doing this kind of voiceover on this slightly weird hot chocolate record you know this great it, it, it's unlikely you would have got you know somebody else sort of pioneering figure from the british blues boom yeah. um would ever have ended up in that position unless they were involved with Mickey Most. <laughs> you know, it's true. Yeah, yeah. Um, maybe if John Mayall's Blues Breakers had signed to rack, it would have been him or something like that. It's I an astounding know. song as well. Is it an incredible it's record? Yeah, yeah. It was a hit in America, was it? Or did someone else have a hit with it in America? I don't know. I think I, it had more success in America. Oh, okay, right, right, right. It's a new one on me. Um, um, yeah, no, it's, it's absolutely it's fantastic. Mm. And uh, you you talked about kind of you know gravitating towards music that falls through the cracks, and mm. I guess the three day week compilation put together by Bob Bob Stanley yeah. is kind of um, abundant. In- yes, yeah, and also it paints a picture of a of, a, of an era which I find. Yeah, I'm endlessly fascinated by the 1970s. It is sort of for all. I mean, there's also there's sort of good reasons, obvious reasons to be fascinated by the 1970s. In that it's you know it's the zenith of a lot of different genres of music. It seems to me to be sort of it's almost the, the, the you know the zenith of reggae. It's the zenith yeah. of soul music. It's a represents you know it's a lot of creation, new things. But I think ultimately with me, it's just the fact that whenever you look at the 70s, whenever you look at footage of the 1970s. Um, even old top of the pops is it looks like a very different alien world. You know, it's mm. the past is a foreign country. Yeah. It's very little you can tie between then and our, our own era when you actually see it on screen. And yet it's a foreign country that I lived in and can just about remember. Mm. And there's something about that sort of tension of it seeming almost sort of mythical, weird, like somebody somebody made this stuff up. Yeah, uh, but I was actually there and can vaguely remember some of this stuff, and I think that's the pull mm. of the seventies for me. And I can't seem to sort of, um, I can't seem to sort of get over it. You're it, doomed to forever try and understand it. And yeah, 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 yeah. I think also given, I think the other thing that sort of made it more pronounced, uh, that sort of idea of looking into it, is, is kind of the world that we live in now. Uh, there's something very 
comfortless about the world we live in now because all this stuff is happening we have no idea how it's going to work out yeah. and it's always quite appealing to look back at another era when there's loads of strife and trouble and these terrible things happening and yeah. terrorism and sort of economic meltdown and all this stuff but there is a kind of resolution to it I mean yeah. admittedly that res- resolution isn't always great but at least it's got some sort of resolution to it so I think there's something about the comfort of history yeah. about the 70s you know about something like that three day week compilation which is clearly a fairly miserable uh, period in British life that it's 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 documenting, you know. But you say, yeah, it's like you say about resolution. You know, it's, we kind of know how that story ends. Yes. Or, you know, it's kind of got a beginning and middle and end, and um, it's uh, and that's a great thing that I think compilations can do. We do it kind of. We we sort of do it unconsciously a lot of the time. Mm. You know, we give we give genre names to areas of music that yeah. you know no one would have known what you're on about if yes. you'd done it at the time yeah i mean even you'll remember that you know certainly for the best part of like the era that we call Britpop, no one used the word Britpop. no no um it just suddenly appeared out of nowhere one day it, you know but it was a bbc2 thing wasn't it i think Britpop was, well, was the bbc2 now uh, Britpop now or something it was called wasn't yeah, it? yeah that thing two. presented by damon alba in a pair i think of that, yeah maybe fours. that was the sorry he was wearing a pair of plus fours wasn't he, wasn't he wearing just a sort of deer stalker in a pair of plus fours <laughs> He was at some point. I can't remember if it was that program. It might well have been. I, I can't. Rem- I can't really remember. I'm, I'm, um, uh, you know. But yeah, no. And uh, and I think if you're a kind of lifelong collector and lifelong music mm. fan, then a fun thing to do is to try and tell, try and create narratives, trying to draw narrative lines mm. in in different kind of uh, periods of history that maybe weren't kind of weren't kind of given a name at the time. Yeah. What three day week does that very well? Freak know, beat is the famous example of that. Nobody called freak beat freak beat in 1965 or 66. You know, mm. I, think, I don't know when the term came along. It was certainly mm. in use when I started collecting those records in the, the late 80s. But um, that's a really interesting thing. It's it wasn't. It was just R and B bands trying to sort of cope with technological advances and the influence of LSD, yeah. um, or the influence of drugs. And I really like that kind of idea of sort of trying to mould. You know, I'm sure if you look at the, the artists on Three Day Week, there's kind of sort of serious artists. Well, I'm not saying the Lieutenant Pigeon aren't the serious artists, but, you know, there's this kind of swathe of people who had very, very different intentions yeah. in their music um, and were in some way consciously or otherwise usually unconsciously affected by uh, current events. Yeah. What was going on in the country somehow seeped into their sound. And I think that is quite an instructive thing uh to, to sort of recognise in the current era the, mm. of pop music that we're living through, where it is seen to be, you know, absolutely derigueur for everybody, uh, pop artists, rock artists, whatever, to be making a point about current events, to be very firmly saying that, you know, body positivity is a good thing and gender neutrality is a good thing and everybody, you know, this, that and the other. And you've got to have a song about these things. And if you don't, you get kind of took to task. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's like, oh, right, you go, you go back there and write a song about how bad Donald Trump is. Um... And then you better do it properly because you've not done it right. There'll be all the thing. We're going to check what words you've used. And if you're, oh, um, and if you look back at the past, generally, I, I understand why people want that. I understand why people want music to be reactive. You know, directly reactive yeah. to current events. It is largely. Uh, it seems to me to be completely antithetical to history. If you look at musical history, generally speaking, there are very, very few instances where the charts were filled with songs that were reacting. There's very, very one very yeah. brief period from sort of the end of punk to sort of the demise of two tone. 
mm. where it ha- absolutely happens in Ghost Towns number one, and yada. That's yeah. one period. It doesn't. Re- it's very difficult no. to think of other periods. Maybe the sort of folk boom or whatever. Well, like, but even even with the sort of, um, I think, even Ghost Town, I think, is a song that is just non-specific enough to be. To be I think it's if it was any more specific, mm. it would be a worse song. It's yes. Just, uh, it's descri- it's describing a scene, mm-hmm. but you know it's kind of a. It's not didactic, which no. I think is important. That's really uh, yeah, and um, and I think uh, you know I think in in a way, that's kind of what I realised in the end that uh, the probably the reason why I don't listen to too much, sort of straight ahead folk music or mm. the kind of folk music sort of that just d- describes a thing that happened you yeah. know, folk, folk songs that almost exist in lieu of a newspaper yes yeah absolutely like a broadside or whatever yeah yeah, yeah. and um and i kind of I'm, I'm not even sure what part they have to sort of play in the contemporary age anymore i can sort of see that they did once upon a time yes in but the 19th I, century or something like that yeah. simply what folk music's for right or yeah things that folk music's but for. there's something that makes me want to chew my own fist off if i accidentally sort of find myself in an audience <laughs> you know just sort of hearing someone kind of very specifically itemize all the all the reasons that they you know don't like didn't like margaret thatcher yeah yeah, yeah. i think even was, though i might agree with them i think the two things two things one the thing that i love about ghost town is that when Ghost Town was number one and, and the streets of Britain are burning, and I, you know I've made this point before, but it's it, it endlessly amusing to me. Um, and it's this great moment where Pop appears to be commenting on the news as it happens. Uh, what's number two in the charts is Bad Manners' cover of the Can Can. <laughs> so, but for a few thousand record sales, you could be watching <laughs> photographs of Toxteth going up in flames with Buster Blood Vessel singing the can, doing the Can Can as the soundtrack, you know. Which in fairness would, would look, you know, it's a, it'd, be, it'd be almost like something from the day to day, wouldn't it? Yes, absolutely. You could cut the footage of people running backwards and forwards and sort of knocking police cars over and then pulling them back up again, you know. Yeah. Um, that's one thing. And also, I think, you know, if you look historically at any given era or lots of different given eras, the music that tells you the most about that era is not necessarily the the sort of most obviously engaged or didactic or whatever. It's the music that it... You know, if you want to understand what it was like living in Britain in 1975, um, you were probably better off not listening to some incredibly uh, politically engaged prog band like Henry Cow, you're probably better off listening to Dr. Feelgood, hmm. who on one level aren't political at all, but something of... I mean, they're playing songs that are already, you know, 10, 15 years old, but something of the desperation and the grimness of that era has seeped into the yeah. very sound of Dr. Feelgood. You know? And that in itself is interesting, the fact that in the first part of that decade, a lot of a lot of bands were suddenly covering old rock and roll songs, and... Um, and it was a, a lot of the people that became kind of pop stars were, were people that tried to become pop stars in the previous yeah, decade absolutely. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. failed. And, uh, but just kind of, you know, sewed a few more sequins onto their clothes. Well, there's two, there's, I think there's two things, isn't there? It's really, it's the first, the early 70s is the first example of the sort of 20 year revival cycle. So you get that kind of 50s revival in the early 70s that that, that links into the history of Ace Records because it's kind of you know it's linked to rock on and starting and things like that but you know you see it in everything from you know Wizard dressing up like Teddy Boys to the big 1972 rock and roll revival show at Wembley so there's that but there's also that sense when glam comes along I mean if you if you look at what happens with glam 
um, it's heralded by these two guys that aren't really taken seriously up to that point. You know, Mark Bolan is certainly not taken mm. seriously in any way by right. the kind of late 60s underground. He's seen as narrow vist. He's seen as, you know, if you read sort of books like Jonathan Green's Days in the Life, people really hated him because they thought he was like cocky and he was yeah. wanted to be. A... So there's him. And then there's David Bowie, who's just tried everything to be famous. And as this kind of total last shit or bust gambit goes, actually, I'm gay. Um, and it sort of works. So you're looking at that from the outside. You are a, and it's like, hang on a minute. What, they're in charge all of a sudden? What, David yeah. Bowie and Mark Bowler? It's like, right, all bets are off. You can, anybody can be famous, right? You know, I used to be Shane Fenton, now I'm Alvin Stardust. I used to be Paul Raven, now I'm Gary Glitter. Do you know what I mean? All these yeah, yeah. people rush into this kind of, it's, it's, yeah. it's not void, it's, it's just like a sudden opportunity. Yeah, because there's, I, I guess there, there wasn't too much else happening anyway. And no. if there was that, that sort of commercial vacuum where, okay, well, this is kind of the best idea we've got. And obviously in the case of... Certainly with David Bowie. Um, well, what's interesting, what you know, I kind of, as you know, I, you know, I, I like going through old music papers a lot mm. and seeing what was happening sort of at the time. Uh, you know, as I'm sure you do as well. The, 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 it's always good to kind of remind yourself just how slow things were to sort of gather ground. Right. And um, in terms of what, the, 1972 you know, the release of Ziggy Stardust, it wasn't suddenly like, okay, everything is called off. It's just mainly <laughs> we're, we're, we're mainly thinking and talking and writing about David Bowie from this moment on. Mm. It was a lot slower than that. You know, the 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 cover stories of, of NME and so forth were far, you know, were probably more concerned with, you know, what, I don't know, like Wishbone Ash were doing. Mm, yeah, yeah, Medicine Head or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. Um, and there's just this slow kind of drip feed of like, it's it's kind of led actually by, more by the kind of growing audiences going to mm. see them rather than, you know, you get, got the thing, music journalists by and large were kind of slightly caught short by the importance of it. Well, I suspect, I suspect because of the people that were in charge. I suppose mm. if you were a kind of, you know, a, a cool enemy writer you'd probably uh maybe you graduated from the underground press in the late 60s something like that these were not people you especially took seriously yeah. you're not going to take david bowie that seriously no. you're not going to take mark boland that seriously so as it turns out they absolutely have the key to the future in their in their hands they they completely know what they're doing well, they completely know what they're doing but they definitely have an idea of what they're doing and, and yeah something's caught flame something has caught flame and they've had this thing that chimes with people and that you know is, is changing things utterly you know yeah. um and yeah i could totally understand why you'd be like yes but of course it's yeah. jethro toll you know it's it's um yes it's, it's, not, it's not taken seriously you know you've had that division of uh, john savage always talks about the division between sort of you know singles buyers and album buyers that's taking place and for all that Ziggy Stardust is a wonderful album. Electric Warrior is a is a wonderful album. They were singles artists. That's you know it it, it it's, it's still about the seven inch single. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so I think there's a sort of snootiness about that at that era as well. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I was just I was thinking about. Funnily enough, last night um, I was watching the. Um, the BBC Four program in which uh, Jeremy Della goes oh, yeah. to a classroom. You've seen it as well. Yes, haven't you? yeah, everybody in the place. Goes, yeah, and sort of talks to for people who listening who haven't seen it yet. Um, who talks to uh, a, a classroom full of uh, school kids in London, I think, mm -hmm. um, about um, 
about the the kind of the 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 causal chain which led up to the sort of acid house kind mm. of revolution in this country and the kind of the, how the sort of social unrest around the miners strike kind of coalesced from one thing into another mm. and um i I I really enjoyed the footage. I enjoyed it. There was a lot about it I enjoyed. I I love Jeremy Della. Mm. But um I was kind of it it was surprised me in a way that the the last 5 minutes in which he sort of seemed to almost surprised himself by coming to the conclusion that things are never going to be as exciting as this mm. again. And there's this slight kind of downcast look in the eyes of all the all the kind of school children. Is this what you've come here to tell us? That actually, <laughs> the, the, these spe- this specific set of circumstances can never happen to us yeah. in a way that would involve us again. I think that's really interesting because one of the points he's making in that programme is he says, oh, you know, Britain was this incredibly divided country. It was divided in a way it hadn't been divided maybe since the 1930s or something like that because of the miners' strike, because of kind of the, the sort of Thatcherite notion of, of how Britain should be sort of coming to fruition. Um, and that's what led people wanted a bit of positivity and togetherness and, you know, dance, music and ecstasy provided that. Well, why couldn't that happen again? Mm. Do you know what I mean? We're, we're living in an incredibly different... We've never been in a more divided time mm, for mm. Britain than we live in now. So why... There's got to come a point where people are going to... You know what I mean? Also, a lot of the best music that uh, that was featured in that documentary mm. was American. Yes. And has nothing to do with the, the social situation in Britain. Yeah, and I'm sure maybe, you know, I'm sure you can draw kind of sort of causal links, but, but really by the time you, you know, Castle Morton was happening mm. and, you know, Spiral Tribe had a kind of huge presence in this documentary... You know, I'd, whatever the virtues and, you know, what, whatever, whatever great things that Spiral Tribe acted as a catalyst for, mm. the, the music was, did not remotely figure in. in no. to, and so it seemed a bit harsh to me that you've got a bunch of children. You know, I sort of, I can, I can name sort of, you know, 10 grime records mm. or, or 10 Afrobeats records that have come out in the last five months alone that, that are just way more exciting. Than anything that yes um, yeah yeah completely okay. I think it's I think the only sort of justification for the argument that he's making is that the the, the change that we've lived through in the last sort of uh, ten fifteen years is probably the most profound change that's affected to my mind the most profound change that's affected pop music since the nineteen fifties in that it is no longer the centre of youth culture mm. something's changed social media is now the centre of youth culture you know when i was a kid when i was a kid um it was the means by which pop music was the means for better or for worse by which ideas about fashion politics everything yeah. was transmitted because there wasn't really any you know any other options it was it was music or sports mm. you know um and that has changed so it no longer it is one of a number you know people are still interested in music but it's one of a number of things you know there's a lot of things jostling for your attention mm. now you know it's probably easier uh if you've got something to say to make your point on social media than it is to start yeah. a band and make a record or whatever so i could sort of see you know that sense of things being different now mm. um and a bit more atomized than they were um and sort of wondering if there's a kind of the potential for a kind of mass movement anymore. But then, as you say, I look at, you know, 
Dave at Glastonbury or Stormzy at Glastonbury or whatever. You know, Jeremy Dallas did say in an interview that he, he compared Grime to Two Tone, mm. which that was a really interesting comparison that nobody's sort of previously made. Um, and clearly, this is music that impacts upon people. This is music that people care about. This is music that speaks to people about their their day to day lives. Um, so yeah, I think I think that's a completely fair point, and I would rather listen to it than 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 the sort of acid techno that Spiral Tribe were playing. Um, well, how do your... Uh, you said that, you know, you made the point that maybe social media is at the centre of mm. most kids. Is that true of your children? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that, you know, they're a bit your Instagram for my oldest daughter, and they're both into something called TikTok, which is kind of like um, you make short videos and then post them and people comment on them. So you get these weird... There's a thing at the moment where there's this... People invent a dance that goes with a certain song, hmm. um, and there's a dance... Uh, to the chorus of I'm Still Standing by Elton John and that's a kind of thing and everybody tries to copy this dance and post videos of themselves um, copying this dance so yeah it is it is I mean they are into music and I also you know you do see artists that kind of cut through that to a certain degree and for my eldest daughter it's Billie Eilish and I think mm. Billie Eilish's impact uh, on sort of teenagers generally teenage girls cannot really be underestimated she's just huge you're in a way that no one else seems to have yeah no, same with my kids so you're i guess you know you're it's professionally incumbent upon you to uh be able to kind of unpack that yeah and uh and sort of explain it first of all do you feel like you you're able to anyway does it uh, do, does it do you feel like you can do that more because you have her target audience in your house yes yeah i do yeah and also because i knew about it before anybody was writing about it i went to the guardian god six months before they ran a feature on billy Eilish, going that look there is this thing happening mm. i don't really know anything about it but it's all my daughter's mm. talking about it's all the mates talk about da, 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 da. so there's that and there's also just that lovely thing of of seeing it through your kids eyes you know um which happened I took my daughter to see, see Billie Eilish at Shepherd's Bush Empire, um, and it was sort of it was sort of brilliant because it was a proper. Every other gig she's been to has been in a, a stadium or an arena or something like that in a big pop show. And this was Shepherd's Bush Empire, which you know it's not the Roxy, you know it's not the Vortex, but yeah. it never it was properly yeah, elbows yeah. out and no. people shoving you and totally, yeah. spilling beer all over. It was a proper felt like a more rock and roll yeah. atmosphere, and seeing this kind of effect that it had on her, the sort of absolute the kind of emotional intensity with which she felt it she was just in floods of tears mm. throughout the gig and i was like to the point i was going are you all right and she, i just love her so much i love her so much and i thought god that's just oh god if you only bottle that feeling if you can and because and, yeah. that's the greatest it's just when music touches you that deeply and affects you that emotionally it's just the greatest feeling in the world outside of falling in love it's God, like totally. falling in love yeah it really is yeah totally um, I, couldn't, I couldn't agree more it's great that it still happens yeah, it, yeah. Uh, it's happening a lot and um, yeah um, what was I going to say oh, something on the back of Billy Eilish that I was going to uh, what were we talking about um unpacking phenomenon oh yeah yeah just and do do they have a handle on so you you mentioned this thing about a sort of i'm still standing you know yeah. we, i was going to ask you about the elton book anyway right but before we get onto that specifically um is it are they at a point now where you know the things that you do professionally can be impressive to them um y yes and no with with elton john um 
they're sort of aware of of who he is now. But previously, he was just like this guy on you. Do you know what I mean? And my my eldest daughter met him about four years ago, and she just thought she was meeting her dad's mate. Yeah. You know, yeah. it was like my mate Steve that I go to the pub with or something. Yeah, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Um, it must be nice for you to see that happen, to know, obviously, knowing as you know your kids, to see that that's what's happening. Yeah, 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 yeah. So there's that sort of thing. I think it, when it's somebody that, you know, uh, they have an awareness of, you yeah. know, that's actually in their world, um, that then they have a sort of feedback. They don't think, you know, what they don't think that people always say to you. I'm sure people say this to you. Um, as, a, as a music writer oh you know your kids must have really cool music taste I bet you play like I'm sitting at home playing the fucking Trout Mask Replica or something or you know um, or Jonkle Train Records or something you know yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Listen, listen to no, turn this off and listen to Sun Ra you know that doesn't that, yeah, that's not how it works and they don't think you know those right you, know, you want to listen to that stuff it's there hmm. um, but they don't have any interest in it and I've not tried to engender no any and they'd probably hate you if you tried I couldn't think of anything that's no. more likely to stub out your love of music you know if my dad had come in when I was you know nine years old and gone there's this amazing new band called Adam and the Ants you know Adam and the Ants were the sort of the, the flashpoint for me they were the thing yeah. which every, point at which everything took off for me um, but if my dad had introduced I don't want to know Adam and the Ants no, were, you didn't, you know? no you didn't want him to understand no no no, of course, no no god no so you know that's the last thing that, that, that you know they can discover that stuff for themselves now you um, we've talked about this before but um, you you know you sort of a lot of you know various kind of rites of passage that you've had in music throughout your life and you were kind of very heavily into that kind of post C86 sort of indie scene and um you know at that age anyway you can be quite tribal in your mm. outlook um i don't i don't know if you were but you know you still what's kind of interesting to me is you know sometimes i kind of ask myself uh, yeah ask questions of myself uh, uh, vis-a-vis sort of you know are you a bit you know I, I wonder if I'm a bit like my quality control has sort of gone down because I am a bit less sort of tribal in that mm. way and you know and whether or not you know what I have to do sort of professionally kind of getting to know musicians mm. who maybe I, I wouldn't ordinarily have sort of got to know <laughs> and stuff and uh, whether or not that's kind of mellowed me out irrevocably or whether or not that would have happened with age anyway. I think A, it's like with age. I think if you still, I think there's something, you know, and, and God bless the people who are still doing this, but, you know, and there's something faintly pathetic about sort of being tribal about music when you're 50. You know, I mean, I just, it just doesn't. It's 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 not for me. You know, I no. wouldn't want to. The, the broadening out of my music taste, the fact that whenever I watch one of those Top of the Pops repeats from mm. the sort of mid '80s or whatever, I can guarantee the record I liked the most on it now would be the record I liked the least mm. back then. You know, I was not yeah. standing, as the young people say, for the Captain yeah. of a Heart by Duble when it came out. But yeah. I just thought oh, this is just brilliant. You know. Yeah. Um, so I, th- I wonder if that, and I also wonder if your quality con- does your quality control go down if you're not tribal? Maybe your quality control goes down if you are tribal because you're willing to accept second-rate stuff as long as it fits within your kind of idea of what you know. I probably listened to quite a lot of indie music hmm. um, in 1986, 1987 that I don't think is very good now, simply because it fitted with the aesthetic yeah. of what I liked. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So I don't think it's kind of. Um, 
I don't know, but then there's part of me that goes, God, you know, I do sort of feel like these days, oh, I like a bit of everything. I don't mean, I do like uh, a bit of everything. You I know? just feel, you know, like you, you, you have these moments where, you know, like five years ago, it was like Mumford and Sons mm. were sort of, you know, lots of people I know and like and mm. respect despised, yeah, like wanted yeah. Mumford and Sons to die. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. and then it happened with Ed Sheeran, who mm. oh, you've interviewed. I have, yeah. Um, and you got on very well. He's a lovely man. And that, man. You, that's, he's the guy that like loads of people want to yeah, die yeah, right yeah, now. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, um, you know, I mean, I, I, I like, you know, I like, I like, I like his poppy, you know, I like mm, Shape yeah, of yeah, You, yeah. I like Nina, mm. I, I like Don't, those mm. are, that's, those are the insurance songs yeah. I really like. And, um, I've never interviewed him, but if I'd interviewed him and come away like him, mm-hmm. there were, I would be slightly niggled by the teenage me. Who go, just, yeah, do you know what I mean? But the, thing, the fascinating thing about that is that it has always happened. There's always been this kind of weird... Well, I mean, always, certainly since the late 60s, there's been this weird thing where somebody is pootling along, as Mumford and Sons were being, a sort of thing, and then suddenly overnight, you know, how with Coldplay, it happens mm. with sort of a lot of people, become this kind of, this kind of vessel in which mm. is contained everything that is wrong about music and our ear and da-da. And I think, the f- I think I'm right in saying, certainly the first people I can, reading back, that it happened to was Simon and Garfunkel. Um, where if you read sort of contemporary reviews, there comes this point about 1968 where people just turn around and go, no, no, fuck these guys. Self-absorbed, middle-class, New York bullshit. Um, And it doesn't matter what Simon and Garfunkel do, they start making these weird TV documentaries about the war in Vietnam and sort of American involvement in Central America. And and people are still, no, 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 they're not part of the thing. You know, Paul Simon's first solo gig, which was at some sort of hippie-ish festival, I think in New York, he was booed off. Wow. Which sounds an incredible thing. They've just had, let us not forget, Simon Garfunkel have just had the biggest selling album of 1970. Yeah. And he comes on stage and he gets booed off. I'm, I'm wondering, according to this, because I didn't really know that that was the, the virulence of the hatred. Mm. To, to them. Does that mean that when they came back with Bridge Over Trouble Water, was that their Beatle bum? Yeah, I think, no, I think Bridge Over Troubled Water made it just, just made it worse. <laughs> it was, I, think, I think Bridge Over Troubled Water was their, um, what would be the Ed Sheeran song? Uh, we found love oh, just that one, where okay. we are. Uh, people are just like, oh, no, you know, oh, no, I hated them before. Now this, you know, <laughs> this kind of quasi-religious balls they've come up with. Right. So, so yeah, I think I think Bridge Over Troubled Water was, was the, their, uh, what was it, Sino More? Was that Mumford & Sons album that people hated? Oh, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Fix You yeah. by Coldplay, that's the, yeah, that's yeah. the equivalent, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, um, we, we're almost out of time. Mm. Just a couple more questions. The Elton book is out... October the fifteenth, and how long? So you, so th- you, there must have been a lot of conversations with him. Yeah, I think I interviewed him twenty four times over the course of about three years for the book. And um, did you sort of agree about what was what you know what 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 should go in, what the interesting stuff was? Yeah, I think so because I think that you know it's it's a mass market book, um, so obviously you want to, and that, that is also part of him as well this sort of celebrity gossipy kind of you know the the guy knows everybody he has the best stories about you know some really remarkable stories about whether it's about john lennon or it's about the royal family or in this kind of insight into what these people were like behind closed doors fascinating so you definitely wanted that in there and also just the nature of his life Hmm. uh you know from the point where he finds fame 
onwards, really, has been such a sort of, you know, awful cliche, such a roller coaster um, of kind of these insane highs and these appalling lows mm. and this ridiculous overconsumption of drugs and this ridiculous overconsumption generally. That all that has got to be, and that is part of him. You're not, you're not putting that on him. But I think there were aspects of his career that I was, you know personally interested in that he might have been pleased that I was interested in you know I was certainly interested in him his pre-fame years in the 60s I think that you know we hear an awful lot uh, about the story of the 60s as told by the winners you know, you hear about the six. You know, there are a lot of books out there about sort of uh, groovy people hanging around the Indica Gallery and going to the UFO Club and all that kind of thing. And you know, and then we all went back to Paul McCartney's and smoked some pot. Um, and there's another sixties. Um, I mean, there's lots of different sixties, you know. Um, but but there's another sixties happening in the music scene in London. These people with their noses pressed against the glass. Mm. That. The vast majority of him go on to be well, not the vast majority of him, a great number of him go on to be hugely famous in the seventies. Yeah, it's Rod Stewart or David Bowie, as we've already said. Um, and he sort of embodies that a bit. And that his career at that point, I just find his career as a jobbing musician on the fringes of things. But he is sort of going to the speakeasy and all these kind of hangouts. But he's not being invited to the Beatles table. You know what I mean? <laughs> he's hanging. He with, yeah, I said he, used to, he had a gang of people he used to hang around with, and one of them was this. Uh, guy who called himself uh, Hans Christian Andersen, who was a sort of hippie, sort of very fey kind of hippie troubadour. And the spell was apparently broken of this sort of ethereal fairy tale quality. Whenever he opened his mouth, and he had this like thick Accrington accent. <laughs> all right, you know. and, um, uh, and he said, oh, you know, he's great, funny little guy. We used to hang around with him all the time. And then this guy changed his name to John and became John Anderson, the lead singer of Yes. Um, Amazing. So there's this sort of notion of all these people that are kind of, some people go on to make it, some people don't. Yeah. And, you know, he had these, there's, you know, there's a story about one of the, I think it's Sibylla's, one of the, the, the sort of rock star hangouts. And he was sort of saying, oh, you know, the most amazing thing about that place was the barman was this guy called Harry Hart. And he said he was an incredibly camp gay man. They used to speak in Polari. Mm. And uh, you'd go... Uh, and he said he had this thing on the... the like a vase on the bar. And uh, you'd go, oh, you know, a gin and tonic, please, and, and have one yourself, Harry. And he'd go, oh, thank you, love. Boner, boner, boner. Just one, just one for the pot. We'd pour out a measure of gin and put it in the vase. And then drink basically a vase of neat gin over the course of the night. <laughs> it just seems to be this kind of weird. So there's all this kind of stuff happening. The Beatles are over there, you know. And yeah. Whatever they're drinking scotch and coke and and you know talking about Bob Dylan or whatever and there's this kind of you know like old gay guy serving at the bar <laughs> drinking a vase full of gin I just that you know those kind of details I found really they're brilliant and did he, did he understand why you found those details oh yeah yeah he, yeah, he, yeah 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 okay. absolutely and and that sort of, he worked for a guy um, in the sixties there was a promoter uh, that bluesology went to work for and he, he was the guy that put them out sort of backing people like Major Lance mm. and sort of 60 stars who would come over um, but if 60 stars did not come over this guy would just go to uh, an area of London with a high uh, Afro-Caribbean population so Brixton um, find four black guys five black guys musicians put them in a band and bill them as the tempting temptations 
And so they'd go off and tour the Tempting Temptations. Nothing to do with the Temptations at all. And if anybody complained, everybody, you know, because he said the thing was, you know, nobody's really seen Motown act. You know, they, yeah, they hadn't yeah, really appeared yeah. on TV a lot. No, and no. If anybody complained, he would go, well, of, course, no, no, of course not the Temptations. I never said it was the Temptations. It's the Tempting Temptations. Completely different band, you know. So he sort of this guy inadvertently invents the tribute act, which I find that sort of thing. And it was happening in like, holiday camps in, in sort of in holiday resorts in Spain decades later. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, you know, preying on the um, the ignorance of, yeah, yeah, of all, yeah. you know, ensuing audiences. Um, I had so many more questions to ask you, but I know you've got to get onto a playback imminently. <laughs> yeah. So, the stuff about disco, Tom Moulton, Westbound Disco, oh. that'll be a record that you're going to grab on the way it out. It will, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but for now, uh, all that remains is for me to thank you. It's been fantastic, Alexis. Always oh, lovely to catch up with you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Pete. And, um, we better get off because I think I'm giving you a lift to the plate. It's playback, very, very kind of you. <laughs> Thank you so much. For more excellent music, you can scoot over to the Ace Records website, www.acerecords.co.uk, for all the wonderful music you could possibly need. <laughs>